got a question for you this morning, or a couple of questions. Which is worse, an immoral, idolatrous, covetous swindler who is not a Christian or one who is? Which would you befriend? Neither? Well, I think Paul's answer to that question might surprise you. We're in 1 Corinthians 5, ready for verses 9 and 10. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Well, apparently Paul had written an earlier letter to the Corinthians that uh, hasn't been preserved for us, in which he told them not to associate with immoral people. The word he used is translated fornicators, those who practice sexual immorality. Now, that created a bit of a problem. It would have been impossible to exist in Corinth and not associate with immoral people unless the church was to become a monastery. So they asked Paul to clarify what he meant, and he was glad to clear up the misunderstanding. He didn't at all mean that they shouldn't associate with the immoral people of the world or the covetous, or swindlers, or idolaters who lived in Corinth. In order to avoid contact with them, they would have to move out of Corinth. In fact, they would have to move out of the world. Since the church is set in the world to be a light for mankind, and salt to affect and influence humanity, Paul wouldn't be saying that. No, we must live in the world, and we must be in contact with sinners, sinners of all sorts. We're going to have to associate with them. The word means to mix up with them. We're going to have to live among them and should even befriend them. You know, we've been commissioned to carry the message of the cross to the world. We are to be missionaries, not monks. We've got to have contact if we're going to share our faith. And that contact is going to have to be more than an occasional nod on the street. We're going to have to really associate, mix up with sinful unbelievers on a social level if we're going to witness to them effectively. Now, for years, the church taught that we were to be isolated from the world unless we were on evangelistic duty, that we were to train and then invade, that we were to go as commando teams and to primarily view people as prospects, you know, potential converts. No wonder they resented our knock on the door. Fortunately, most churches have given up on that approach to evangelism. 
But sadly, most of us have also given up a passion for evangelism. You know, we're still called to be light and salt in the world. The Great Commission has not been decommissioned. We still have an obligation to reach the world with the gospel. And that means we've got to associate those who live in the world. We cannot withdraw from the world. We can't withdraw simply because we're more comfortable hanging out with our Christian friends, nor can we cut ourselves off from those in the world because, like the Pharisees of old, we feel they might contaminate us. No, Jesus didn't. In fact, the Pharisees accused Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard because he ate and drank and socialized with tax gatherers and sinners. He made friends of them, even called them to be his disciples. In responding to the Pharisees, Jesus said that he had come as a physician to heal the sick and therefore had to associate with them. So we too are to associate with sinners, to mix up with the world. Jesus did, and Paul here makes it very clear that we're not to cut ourselves off from the world. We are, however, to be in the world, but not of the world. A very important distinction. In Ephesians 5, Paul makes it clear that we are not to participate in the deeds of darkness. We're not to join sinners in their sin under the guise of befriending them. Now, we may have to swallow a scruple or two to associate with them, but we cannot participate in their sin. And in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul makes it clear that we're not to be yoked, bound together with unbelievers. We're not to become so intimately involved with them that we're not free to follow the Lord. We can't lock ourselves into a relationship that will force us to walk away with unbelievers, away from our Lord. Now that rules out marriage and other close binding relationships with unbelievers. But it does not rule out associating with them, even befriending them. There are dangers and limitations to our involvement with unrepentant and unforgiven sinners, but we are to associate with them. We're not to cut ourselves off from the world or the immoral, idolatrous, covetous swindlers who live there. But, as Paul goes on to make clear, we are to separate ourselves from anyone in the church who is immoral or covetous or an idolatrous or a reviler or a drunkard, or a swindler. You see, there is a double standard. Yes, there is. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother 
if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. We are to cut ourselves off completely from any so-called brother who lives in sin. Be sure to notice, Paul says, so-called. He's talking about someone who's only pretending to be a brother. He's talking about a hypocrite. Someone who, by the life he's living, is proving himself not to be a genuine brother. Someone who, for example, can be identified as an immoral person, a fornicator. Someone who engages in illicit sexual behavior before marriage or after. Someone who claims to be a Christian and to have made their body into the temple of the Holy Spirit and then has no regard for that fact. Who uses their body for selfish, sinful, momentary pleasure. Such a one is to be excommunicated if they refuse to repent of that sinful behavior. Paul also singles out a covetous person. Now, as we noted last week, that type of sin is hard to spot. It would be hard to discipline someone for covetousness in its beginning stages when it's only in the heart. But if it becomes evident and someone's life becomes dominated by greed... After claiming to have died to self, they are to be disciplined, even excommunicated, if they fail to repent. He next mentions idolaters. Now, in Corinth, it would have been easy to spot an idolater. He'd be going into the pagan temples and worshiping there. Today, it may be a little harder to identify, but if it becomes evident that after claiming to have made Jesus Lord of their life, someone dedicates themselves to serving the God of materialism or some other secular God, the church must act. Next he speaks of a reviler, someone who slanders and gossips and abuses others verbally. They're not to be tolerated in the church. And the drunkard. He's to be disciplined. Now, it's important to note that he said drunkard, not drinker. He's not telling us to discipline those in the church who drink moderately. Now, if I had my druthers, all alcohol, except for the kind you rub on your back or burn in your car would be flushed down the drain. (laughs) I have no use for it at all. And I think it's stupid to take even that first drink. But that is my opinion. Scripture does not prohibit the moderate consumption of alcohol by believers. As we noted earlier, Jesus drank. He drank wine. New wine according to the Greek. It wasn't 
distilled or brewed to increase its alcoholic content. And in fact, it was probably diluted with water, as was the Jewish custom. But it was grape juice that had been stored in a goat skin and was no doubt fermented. So while I can and do discourage you from drinking and even encourage you to read the article on the sermon table entitled, Why I Gave Up Alcohol, if you are of legal age to do so, you cannot be disciplined for moderate drinking. Alcoholism, on the other hand, must be dealt with as sin. And while it is apparently true that some are more susceptible to alcoholism than others, it must not be viewed as a sickness for which someone cannot be held responsible. Binge drinking and drunkenness is sinful and is to be met with discipline in the church. Paul's final example is a swindler, a crook, someone who cheats people out of their possessions. They're not to be tolerated in the church. None of these are. In fact, we are to cut ourselves off from them in every way, even socially. We're not even to eat with them. Why? Because those in the church are holy, set apart for God. And that means those in the church are to be different from those who are not. We have accepted a higher standard. And we have told the world that we are Christians. We must therefore be what we claim. Anyone who disregards that and gives Christ a bad name by living a life of willful, deliberate sin is to be removed from the church. So the world can see that they were right. That man was a hypocrite. Now, there was a time when I thought we were supposed to tolerate hypocrites in the church. I'd even been known to respond to the accusation that the church was full of hypocrites with, yes, and there's always room for one more. I thought it was clever. You know, I thought the parable of the tares taught that we weren't to pull tares, weeds, hypocrites out of the church for fear of pulling up the wheat with it. That we were to allow both to remain until Jesus returns and then he would have his angels sort out who's what. But that's not what Paul is saying here. In verse 13, he'll say, Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Last week, we heard him say, Clean out the old leaven, warning that it will permeate the whole loaf. So is Paul contradicting what Jesus said in the parable of the tares? Let's take a close look at the parable and see. It's found in Matthew 13, 24 through 30. And he presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat 
and went away. When the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you're gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, in verse 24, Jesus said he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And the church is often referred to as the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. So at first glance, it does look like he's talking about the church, saying that Satan will sow tares in the church and we shouldn't pull them out. But is that actually what he's saying? Maybe we better let him explain what he means. And he does so in verses 36 through 43. Then he left the multitudes and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the Son in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus here identifies the field as the world, not the church. He's describing kingdom work in the world. He is not saying that we shouldn't keep a clean house in the church. He's saying the kingdom of God will be in the world, but it's not our place to rid the world of terrors. The church must coexist with the world. It's not our job to do what the angels will be sent to do at the second coming. He's not saying anything here that contradicts what Paul says about discipline in the church. So we are to pull evident terrors out of the church. But... Doesn't that put us in the position of judging others? It certainly does. And Paul addresses that next, verses 12 and 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? 
do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourself. We're not to enforce our standards on the world. When we accepted Christ, we accepted revealed truth about life and death, God and man, right and wrong. And we agreed to live by that revelation. We are not judging when we look at a man with his hand in the till and tell him that he's stealing and that it's wrong to steal. That fact has been revealed to us. We're not determining that it's sin. Our Lord told us it is. And if that man is a Christian, he understands that we are not making a personal judgment call. The one he claims as his Lord and Savior is the one who made that judgment call. But if that man hasn't accepted Christ, nor the authority of his word, telling him God says it's wrong to steal isn't going to mean anything to him. He doesn't acknowledge God or care what he says. Now that doesn't make it right for him and wrong for us. But it does mean that if a man doesn't accept God's revealed standard of morality, we cannot force him to live by it. We can't even judge him on that matter. We can't accuse him of violating a standard he never accepted. Now, society may enforce its laws on him, but we cannot enforce Christian standards on him. That's very, very important for us to remember. We have no place judging those outside the church. I think it's wrong for us to march in the world pointing a finger at sinners and declaring them to be sinful and condemning them. I don't think they care what we think. All it does is make enemies of the church. Now, I'm venturing away from my text here. Oh, oh, oh makes everybody nervous, I know. Yeah, I do think we have responsibilities as good citizens to try to see that good laws are legislated and that action is taken when things are done that endanger the fabric of society. I think that's appropriate for us. So there is a role we're to play even out there, okay, in the world. It's not our place to condemn people for sinning. Or even to try to convict them of their sin. We've already learned that's the Holy Spirit's role, not ours. Okay? I think this is important. I think the church messes up a lot in this area. 
It's not our place to judge the world. God will judge those in the world in his own way, in his own time, as he sees fit. Now, it's not wrong for us to warn those in the world of coming judgment and tell someone in the world of the danger that he's facing. That's not inappropriate. And if he listens, he may respond. The Holy Spirit may convict him and he may be freed from future condemnation. But we cannot sit in judgment over him. Let's get that ingrained in our mind. But we are to judge those within the church. That is, we are to judge those objectively observable sins that are found in the lives of church members. We talked about that last week. Again, we cannot judge motives or the heart, but we can and must judge willful, obvious sin. If Christ called it sin, or the apostles called it sin, we must call it sin. It's become popular today to suggest that if Jesus didn't name something a sin, then it's not a sin. The apostles continued revealing to us God's will for the church. The revelations we receive from the apostles has every bit of much authority as did what Jesus told us. Let's never let the world try to take away apostolic authority from God's word, okay? There are lots of issues that come under that. If Christ called it sin, or the apostles called it sin, we must call it sin. And by naming Christ as Lord, a Christian has agreed to a certain standard of behavior. You know, Lord is not his middle name. Okay? It's a statement of our relationship with him. We have named him our master. That's what the word means. We've made him the Lord of our life. We have agreed to a certain standard of behavior, a certain moral code, if you please. And if someone who has accepted that publicly then refuses to abide by it, we are obligated to go to him. And following the procedure outlined in Matthew 18, try to restore him to a life of obedience. If he won't repent, we are to cut him off from the church. We are to remove wicked men from our midst. Again, it's done with the hope of restoration that this action is taken, but it must be taken. We are to judge one another in the church. We've been given a standard to follow, and we've agreed to follow it. 
when we sin against it, we are to be made to face up to that fact. So there is indeed a double standard. We are to judge those in the church, but not those in the world. So if someone in the church is sinning against God's word and refuses to repent, we are to separate ourselves from them, not even to eat with them. At the same time, we are to associate with those in the world who do the same things. In Christ, we have a different standard. We've been freed from the bondage of sin. We've been given the Holy Spirit to empower us to live a sanctified life, and we are expected to do so. You know, living by grace doesn't mean we can do whatever we want. Somehow we've gotten that idea. We've been empowered to live a sanctified life, a separate life. And if a so-called brother won't, we are to cut ourselves off from him. The man in the world, on the other hand, is still enslaved to sin. He really can't help himself. So we've got to go to him and befriend him. We've got to let him see that we really care about him as a person. And then hopefully he'll listen when we tell him the good news. That Christ can release him from the bondage of sin and that he can live a new life in Christ. That's our message to the world. If you're outside of Christ today, we don't judge you for your sin. But God will if you neglect the great salvation He offers to you through His Son. It's our prayer, therefore, that you will hasten to Him and find forgiveness for your sins. And that you will then allow us as a church to help you maintain the purity that comes through the blood of Christ. And that you will give us the privilege of entering into a relationship with you that will enable us all to be faithful to Christ and free from unrepentant, willful, hard text. I hope it was a hard sermon. I hope you take it to heart.